Uh, last week, Josh Bond preached. Thank you, Josh. Great job, brother. Appreciate you. Yeah, let's thank him. <clears throat> it was better than you're receiving. So, um, Jill and I were uh, away for, uh, in Mexico for our 25th wedding anniversary. Thank you for marrying me. Um, and uh, we're glad to be back uh, with you today. The last uh, several months, we've been on an important quest together. We've been seeking to, to answer the question of all questions. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3 puts it this way, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is a poetic way of saying, is there any meaning in life? And if so, how do I get some of it? In one sense, the book of Ecclesiastes is, is sort of like an instructional diary. It's somebody who's set out through experience to try to answer that question and then recorded his experiences in order that we would not have to learn them the same way. That instead of going down lots of dead ends trying to discover what makes life meaningful, we can instead hear from Him and experience the benefits without the pain of His journey. Unlike us, the preacher, as he's called, that's what Ecclesiastes means, the preacher had unlimited resources. And so if he set out to discover, is life about power, then he could attain the greatest amount of power possible. I mean, he was a king, and yet power left him wanting. And he could do the same thing with pleasure, with money, with accomplishments. But each one of those avenues came up empty at providing lasting meaning. Yet all along the way, he has instructed us six different times to make the best of our brief lives, to work hard, to savor food and drink, to recognize everyday enjoyments in the gift of life. And yet, not once in those six brief moments of reprieve from the darkness of the book did the preacher actually give us the answer to the question. So we've spent 13 weeks now in a book and still haven't answered the question. The reason for that is the answer doesn't come until literally the last passage. So if you've struggled with understanding what is this book ultimately about, it was written in such a way that that struggle would leave us wanting the answer until the very end. The conclusion of the book, what's called the epilogue, will finish at the very peak by giving us the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? It's going to do so in three uh, movements, if you will. First, we're going to learn about the preacher's approach. He's going to summarize for us what he set out to do. Second, we're going to hear his admonition. This will be a final warning or word of caution given to us. And then finally, right at the very end, he's going to end with a sense of awe. So that'll be our outline for this morning. Approach, admonition, 
and awe. Do you see what I did there? The Baptist seeps out every now and then. There it is. All right, so look with me, if you would, at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher's approach to his task of trying to find the meaning in life is what we would call hands-on. He didn't go to the library, he just lived life. And so he didn't seek to find the answer to the question in books, but rather through his own experience and observation. Along the way, he recorded his findings, desiring to convey the knowledge that he gained. And the task of recording and conveying, he said, involved two things, a a weighing, studying, and arranging, and a finding words of delight and uprightly recording them. Consider both of those things with me, weighing, studying, and arranging. Like an expert botanist studying many kinds of plants and then classifying them according to their kind, the preacher sought to find the meaning in life. He studied the theories that existed as he looked at life around him. Some people said, you'll you'll find the meaning of life if you accomplish things. And so he built great buildings. He conquered many nations. But those accomplishments didn't provide him lasting meaning. Other people said, no, 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 you find life and meaning in pleasure. And so he married literally 700 women and then added 300 concubines on top of those wives. A thousand pleasures at his disposal. But that didn't work. And then he went down the path of work. That also didn't provide lasting meaning. He gathered along the way each one of these avenues. And then he arranged his discoveries into pithy sayings, wise words known as Proverbs. We read these throughout Ecclesiastes. And if Solomon is the author of this book, then even more of these sayings are gathered in the book of Proverbs. Let me remind you of a few of them that are especially meaningful and uh, ones that would be good to remember. Uh, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after wind. It's Ecclesiastes 4, verse 16. And then from Ecclesiastes 9, the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. The preacher is telling us what he did is he took out on a giant uh, symbolic scale and he weighed on the one hand the meaning of life. I mean, that's the ultimate question. With pleasure. And then he looked at the scales, but it never tipped in the right direction. He weighed relationships, sex, 
accomplishments, work. He squeezed every last drop out of those experiences, bringing them to their ultimate end, seeking to find the weight of each. And then he arranged sayings about them so that you and I don't have to learn everything through the school of hard knocks. We can learn some things through this man's experience. Listen to this preacher and you'll be spared his pain. Parents, disciplers, mentors, teachers, family ministry volunteers, grow accustomed to using Ecclesiastes, not simply for this one sermon series, but for the rest of your life as you do the work of trying to bring up others in the faith. Ecclesiastes is a goldmine of truth, especially truth that the young, the anxious, and the angsty need to hear. And I just named three-fourths of our church. Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book for people like us. As you do so, notice the other thing the preacher said about his method, his approach, that that he sought to convey words of delight and record them uprightly. Now, don't miss that. I think there's something important here. I'm not sure I've ever said anything about in a sermon other than the last one, like an hour ago. The preacher worked hard to communicate with certain words, words of delight, He's talking about the way in which something is expressed, words of beauty, words easy to enjoy. Friends, beauty matters. There's a certain quality that's to be admired in the book of Ecclesiastes. Take, for example, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All he's saying is everything is the same over and over and over. But instead of just saying it that way, he said it beautifully so that it would be memorable, so that it would taste good, so that you would admire it. Take the poem in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Friend, did you know that that is one of the most famous poems that's ever been written? Many people who've never picked up a Bible have heard that poem. Why? Because it's beautiful. One more. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. The preacher believed that if something is worth saying, it's worth saying well. Let me push you a little bit here. I think we have a lot to learn from that. Modern 
Protestant Christians in the West have little appreciation for beauty and delight. It's not something we value. We don't value things because they're done well, built to last. I've never lived somewhere before where Christians care less about appropriate beauty. Beauty that prompts worship. Beauty that communicates weight and value to something. Think, for example, about how casual our attire is. Not like every day, I don't mean that, but think about even at weddings and funerals. The first funeral I ever did uh, here um, was for a, a family friend. So these are not church members. I'm not talking about you, all right? The first wedding I did, I counted, that's a little neurotic, I counted 12 grown men in the room in shorts at a funeral. Now, is there a Bible verse that says don't wear shorts to funerals? Of course not. But why do people... You've only got so much you can do with what you've been given, right? But if you're going to something important, you can dress like it's important because that communicates the value of the thing you're going to. Now, you might not believe that about clothes, but you believe that about food. You want food to taste good, don't you? Why? Well, because that's the beauty of food. Or consider the difference between a, a, the typical uh, church building built a couple hundred years ago and the typical church building built today. Now, it's not that um, the church that meets in a warehouse where all there are, are black walls and metal folding chairs is somehow less able to worship God than a church in a beautiful cathedral. But people who came before us tended to understand that when we worship God together, we're, we're worshiping the transcendent one. We're doing the most important thing we ever do on earth. And so their buildings even communicated that. There was a certain beauty to them that's almost lost to us entirely. We desperately need a new building as a church to worship in. But one of the things that's hung me up over the years in trying to lead us to actually go for it is that the temptation would be just build a big barn. Who cares what it looks like? But I don't actually believe that. I believe there's a, a beauty necessary like this room has. Brothers and sisters, the aesthetics of something are not merely ornamental. God made food taste good. He caused flowers to be arrayed in a brilliant display of color. He designed good writing to be pleasurable and well-crafted music to be memorable. 
Beauty helps us to enjoy whatever that thing is we're talking about. I think in our haste, we sometimes neglect the value of working hard at something so that it's done well. The preacher didn't make that mistake. He wanted us to understand we are weighing out the question of what is the meaning of life. And if we're going to weigh something that important, then the answer ought to be communicated in a way that such that the ear hears its beauty in the words that are conveyed. Now, 20 years ago, I would not have said a single one of those things. I didn't believe any of that. I was very utilitarian. But as I age much quicker than my wife, then I come to see that those who came before us had their finger on the pulse of something that matters and that we would do well to pick it up and resume it to the degree that we can. This is speaking specifically about the writing we call Ecclesiastes, but isn't it true of the whole Bible? Christian, the way to know God, the way to find answers to what matters most The way to grow up in godliness is to keep your nose in this beautiful book. Why are there so many genres in the Bible? Why does the Bible say certain truths in certain ways? Well, it's because God picked the most beautiful way to say something. See, the inspiration of the Bible applies not only to what it's being said, but how it's being said. The genre isn't like Tupperware. It's not just about what's inside. It's conveying truth through its medium too. In our members meeting tonight, I hope to share with you a few initiatives we'll be taking as a church next year to help us meet with God in His Word in increasing ways. But for right now, I just want to encourage you to consider the approach the preacher took as helpful to us and as maybe a new way of thinking about how to read your Bible. That leads us to the second movement in the passage, admonition. Now, for a church next to a university and one that's got high school and middle schoolers in it, These two verses will be of particular interest to you, particularly as we head into finals. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. This isn't the part you're going to like. Like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Mom, mom, I know I got a C, but I was listening to that verse of much study is a weariness. Of making books, there is no end. Boy, is that true. I looked on Friday, and as of Friday morning of last week, thus far in 2021, 2,515,000 books 
have been published. Have you read a single one? Ecclesiastes just told us, be aware, beware of every single one of them. 2,515,000 books. Beware. Why? If you go to Barnes & Noble this afternoon, it's becoming close between like the, the, I forget the word, the anime kind of stuff. That's taking over Barnes & Noble. It's getting close to being as big as the self-help section. You can study all the anime and self-help you want. What are you going to get? A weariness. It's what the text says. Why? Because those books don't provide the ultimate answer to the meaning of life. I would encourage you to read a few of those 2.5 million books, but I want to encourage you to base your life only on one book. Make sure that you do all that you can do, Christian, to become intimately familiar with what God says in His Word. Because the Scriptures, the text says, are given to us by one shepherd, eternally having His people on His mind. God ever tells us the truth. Church, a shepherd is one who gives himself to the care of the sheep. He foregoes his own comfort and safety for the good of the sheep. And he cares enough about his sheep to live among them. His work is to protect, to guard, to guide. Now, this imagery for many of us is just completely lost on us. We we didn't grow up with sheep, so it just doesn't connect in the same way. But let me try to describe it briefly. Imagine with me that this room that we're sitting in together is a grass field. So, One of the jobs of the shepherd would be to guide those sheep to that field. If the sheep ate all this grass, and then between us and all the grass out on the lawn, there was this strip of 20 feet of concrete like we have right here. Guess what? The sheep wouldn't instinctively know, I should go 20 feet over there, there's the grass. Like I can see it from here. Why? Because sheep are stupid. (laughs) What is one of the central repeated images of us in the Bible? (laughs) Friend, God has set before us a feast a feast in His Word. But without the shepherd to guide us there again and again and again and again and again and again, we don't cross the 20 feet. The shepherd ultimately is Jesus. The one shepherd in John chapter 10 is described this way. 
Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. For time's sake, if I jump down to verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of the fold. I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know this shepherd, when, when the passage said, I know the sheep and the sheep know me, if it feels like you know something about God, but you don't really know God, then the Lord in His kindness perhaps brought you here today so that you would hear Anthony stand and share with you about how he recently came to know that shepherd. That shepherd's name is Jesus. He gave his life that you might know him, not about, but know. I want to encourage you after the gathering ends to simply ask somebody sitting near you, I want to know how I can know him. I think there's probably somebody near you, maybe even somebody you came with that can answer that. If not, any one of the pastors around would be very glad to share with you about how you can come to know Jesus. Now, how is it that God uses the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and indeed the whole Bible to shepherd us? Well, fittingly, Ecclesiastes 12 verse 11 uses shepherd imagery to tell us. He, text, he tells us, I said he texted, he texted us about goads and nails. Goads and nails. What's a goad? They're not those disgusting looking things that are in the, uh, in the grocery store next to the pumpkins. Those big warty, gross, not that goad. This is a different goad. What are those called, actually? Ah, yes. I was close. I'm a a bit rusty. It's been a week. Goads, not gourds. What's a goad? A goad is right there. That is a goad. The shepherd... The shepherd's job was to lead you to the food and water and to protect you. And so if a wolf was coming, he needed to get you moving in a hurry. If there was no more food, he needed to make sure you moved on when you didn't want to. And so, guess what the shepherd would do? He'd uh, whack your hind end. And the metal piece on the end was... uh, Sharp enough to sting a bit, but not long enough to do any damage. So, the picture here is that God motivates us by giving us some spankings in the Word. Now, this might surprise you, but you don't always know what to think, where to go, 
what's best, what's true. I know it's hard to imagine that, but you don't. That's what the Scriptures are for. And so, when you read the Bible, if you ever feel a little bit of sting, ah, that hurts. That's God, the shepherd, using His Word to get you moving in the right direction. God may smack our hind in with some truth from time to time to guide us. And Ecclesiastes is full of goads. That's why it's been a hard book to study. Hearing for week after week after week after week that life under the sun is meaningless. It's vain. That's hard to hear. Being told that we're all going to die and to get ready now because it could come very quickly. That's a whoosh. That's a goad. But God gives wisdom in His Word that we might listen. And notice what Jesus said in John 10 and 11. Jesus didn't say, my sheep hear my voice and then go and do their own thing. He said, my sheep hear my voice and obey listen. If you don't ever feel, when you read the Scriptures, a, a, a bit of um, correction, then friend, you're not, you're not actually reading the Bible and letting the Bible read you. That's what it's for. Can you think of the last time you were corrected, either in something you believed or in something you've not been doing that you needed to do, or in something that you needed to stop doing that you had been doing, or in your outlook? I hope you can think of lots of things, because the Bible's full of them and they're for our good. Now, what about the nails? That was the second bit of imagery. Today, in this side of the cross, if we think about nails in the Bible, inevitably we're going to be thinking about the cross. But I don't think the author of Ecclesiastes was prefiguring what Jesus would go through here. No, this is also shepherd imagery. If a shepherd was going to be in a particular region for a while, then he wouldn't just sleep under the stars, he'd put up a tent and he'd use nails to hold that tent down, what we would call tent stakes. The blessings of a tent are many. They include stability and security. Stability and security. When, uh, when I was a teenager, really honestly even younger than that, as a young child all the way up through my mid-twenties, my life was a mess. I was filled with spiritual doubts, existential angst, theological confusion, and any minor hardship in life tended to feel like an impossible roadblock. Today, honestly, every one of those hardships I just listed are gone. And they've been gone 
for years. From an outsider's perspective, if you had looked at my life then, I think the average person would have said, you have absolutely nothing to be anxious, worried, sad, upset, depressed about. Nothing. Because externally, everything was fine. There weren't any real difficulties. And today, if you, if you look at my life, uh, there are several things to feel beat down about, like objectively. But I will testify to you today of the stability of the nails of the Word of God. There is security and protection found in the Word of God. Friend, if you feel tossed about, if you feel like a fraud, like any moment somebody's going to find out, if you feel like your life is out of control, even though it may appear to everybody else that you got your stuff together, the answer, the solution, is to get in the tent of God's Word, to listen to Him. That's what the preacher's telling us. Give yourself to knowing God in the Word. Heed its direction whenever you feel the sting of the goad or the gourd. Life under the sun is challenging. Wolves abound, the elements are harsh, and there are very, very, very few guarantees. But God speaks, and God is good, and so what God says is good. And the source of both correction and encouragement is His Word. Friend, if you are a Christian who who sometimes reads the Bible, you go through spurts of it, and the reason those spurts stop is because you don't find it fruitful. If you would honestly say, I've tried that and it doesn't work for me, then the problem isn't the Word. The problem isn't that it won't work for you. You just need a little bit of coaching. That's all. Why would we think people need help to learn how to swing a golf club, but not to learn how to read the Bible? That doesn't make any sense. Why would we think you just pick it up and read it and everything will be equally clear if you really are sincere? We don't think of anything else like that. Why would we think, I need a tutor for my math? but not a tutor for the Word. Friend, if you've spent time in the Scriptures and found it frustrating, unhelpful, even annoying, then I want to encourage you to think of somebody who's a little bit further along in life. doesn't have to be much, but whose life has a quality about it that, spiritually speaking, you would aspire to become like him or her. Then, 
Go to that person today. Don't wait. And don't say, hey, would you mentor me for the rest of my life? Don't put that kind of pressure on the relationship. Simply say, I don't find the Scriptures very goady. I need some help. Would you meet with me two, three, four times? And help me understand what you do when you read the Bible. And friend, I think it may take more than one try, but I think in your second or third attempt, if not your first, somebody will say to you, I would be delighted to do that. Until I had help, uh, I found the Bible to be boring, uninteresting, and unhelpful. I just didn't know what I was doing. I want to encourage you, find somebody if you share a similar experience. So we've talked about the preacher's approach. We've talked about the preacher's admonition, but I still haven't answered the question. What is the meaning of life? Well, this is only the book in the Bible that I'm aware of that holds its entire thesis, the answer, the reason the book exists, until the last two sentences. Doesn't it feel like that's the way life works? Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Church, life is not about personal accolades or accomplishments. It's not about accomplishing and amassing great wealth. It's not about having lots of sex with lots of people. Life is not about, on the one hand, all the pleasure you can find. Nor, on the other hand, self-denial, as though if you avoid every worldly pleasure, then your life will be meaningful just because you've avoided worldly pleasure. Neither one of those things work. Life, verse 13 tells us, is about awe, A-W-E. It's about reverence, it's about respect, it's about admiration, it's about humble obedience. You and I, you see, are not image creators. We are image bearers. Our sole responsibility in life is to reflect the glory of another. We were made not in our own image, but in God's own image. If you take a car and try to go drive it on Tempe Town Lake, that will not go well because that car was made for something else, it was made for roads. If you take your life and try to make your life ultimately about money, people's opinions, sex, trips, marriage, a degree, your job, 
you are taking your car and trying to drive it on Tempe Town Lake. That is not what you were made for. You were made to live in awe of God. You were made to reflect His glory, to display Him in the stuff of everyday life. That's why you draw another breath. Those who know the meaning of life and thus experience life to the fullest are those who live with an awe of God and in God's strength are learning to obey His commands. Why? The text gives two reasons. I want to consider them both with you briefly before we go. The first reason is because that's the whole duty of man. Now, in that first reason given to us, the ESV translates the sentence that way, because that's the whole duty of man. And we use the ESV as a church, we preach from it, because it's the clearest, most faithful to the original text in a word-for-word way of all the English translations. But the original Hebrew, what the, what the preacher and the editor wrote, is actually this phrase, because that's the whole of man. It doesn't include the word duty. The ESV translators put that word there to help gain the sense of what the text means. Now, quit thinking about duty like a dog doing its duty, all right? I can see it on some of your faces. I don't think the word duty is all that helpful here, not because of dog duty, but because we have today a negative connotation with the word duty, don't we? I mean, if mom says, go do your homework, why? Because that's your duty, because I told you so. None of us like to hear that. Let's be honest. We don't like that. So I think a better word to use that would avoid the negative connotation and still help us get a sense of what this means is the word essence. Because that's the whole essence of man. The essence of something is its basic nature. It's what makes that something what it is. For in the essence of humanity is that we exist to live in awe of and in obedience to God. That's what the preacher is getting at. It doesn't matter how many attractive people you sleep with, how many degrees you earn, how many possessions you purchase, how many trips you take, how much wealth you save for retirement. The foundation of your life must be in awe of God. Everything else crumbles. Tripp calls this a glory war, Paul David Tripp. He says, every day you and I are living in an all-out glory war, that you will either choose to live for self-glory or for God's glory. Isn't that helpful? Part of what causes an appropriate awe of God 
a life glorifying to God, part of what produces that is that God is a just judge. And as the just judge, He has the right to determine what is good and bad, right and wrong. And friend, all of us were born with a bent to disobey God. And all of us were born in such a way that certain temptations were more attractive to us than others. Maybe you're just naturally short-fused. Like, you go from irritated to exploding in a blink. It may be that you are naturally predisposed to that. Friend, the great need of humanity is to learn that we can't fix our predisposals and that we have acted on those many times. And the way we deal with that is we judge each other for the other predisposal things that they have that we don't have in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. But in reality, the text here tells us right here at the end, Verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment. What does that mean? It means as people made to image God, then we're accountable to do that. And when we inevitably fail, God sees. God is like your mom and every third grade teacher that exists. He has eyes in the back of his head. You're not ever going to get anything by him. And so every person will meet the judgment of God. That judgment is either met at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus took the judgment for all who trust Him, or that judgment will be met on your own on the last day. The reason life is about awe and obedience is because we will meet that just judge. Over and over and over, the book of Ecclesiastes has told us, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Looking at life horizontally, that's true because every one of the pursuits in life end up being dead ends. Everything is meaningless. And yet... There is more than what's under the sun. God is over the sun. And if you look at life vertically instead of horizontally, then you will see that nothing is vanity. That is the great irony of this book. It turns out that from the incredibly massive decisions you make, to the minuscule little thoughts that you choose to run around in your mind. Nothing is in vain. Nothing is meaningless. Because God sees it all. Fear God and keep His commands. Because that is the essence of human life, and that is what 
you will be held accountable for. And let me close with this. Church, when Jesus returns, will you hear him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master because you've trusted Jesus Christ and then learned to live a life of obedience. Or will you hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. Living for that day is what moves us from living under the sun where we're giving our lives to all the things that are meaningless. Living for that day will mean we don't make that mistake. It means we'll go through everyday life with an awe of God because that's what we're created for and because we know we will meet Him. It's inescapable. I hope this book has blessed you as much as me. Let's pray. Father, please use this humble, feeble, imperfect attempt to express your perfect word. Help us now to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you stand with me for benediction? Thanks. It comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, now may the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.